This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Casting Lots. And the author, William D. McEachern, and Bill joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Bill. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Great to have you with us. Uh, fascinating, fascinating question. Wouldn't it be great, especially it seems like this time of year, to well, all the focus on Easter and on the Savior, wouldn't it be great to interview the centurion, the centurion Cornelius, who crucified the Savior, and of course, uh, to learn more about his life and his interaction with Pontius Pilate and, and others, and that's what your book is all about. That's correct. Thank you. A lot of research here, I'm sure, as well. Of course, uh, you know, you've the, the, the license of the fiction based on historical fact. There is a great deal of research in this book. I spent many, many years, uh, you know, making sure that I had my facts correct and to make sure that uh, I made this as authentic as possible. Well, before we learn more about the, the plot and more about the characters in your book, tell us a little bit about your background, Bill, and why you decided to do this. Well, um... Uh, although I've been a tax attorney for the last 36 years, um, my heart has always been uh, in uh, studying religion, particularly early Christianity, and uh, I did a great deal of work. Um, I was a major in religion at Duke University. Uh, I took Latin, some Greek, some Aramaic, and I've you know, been a long time, uh, affiliated with the church. I worked as a youth minister and uh, directed youth programs and taught uh, adult Bible classes. So I, I've always been interested in early Christianity, and uh, I'm now in the process of retiring from my practice of law, so I have more time to focus on what I truly am interested in and what I truly love. So this, this storyline came about how? Well, actually, um, I was sitting in church and listening to a sermon on a completely unrelated topic, and it really came to me pretty much whole, and I, I felt very cold, very compelled to write this story, uh, to answer the question of why Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and uh, to explore more about the centurion who was at the crucifixion, and who later converted to Christianity as the first Roman official. Yes, we all know the famous scene, of course, uh, at the crucifixion with the earthquake and uh, the centurion making that uh, very, very uh, revealing comment about who Christ was. Very much so. And, and for him to come to that realization from that very, very short interaction with Jesus uh, is uh, uh, really a major element of my story, but it is miraculous and, 
and awe-inspiring. So Cornelius the Centurion, we get to know him right from the start, don't we? I mean, your story is a lot about building these characters and really getting into their heads. Yes. Um, I, I link Cornelius. I, give, uh, I, I researched him to the extent that I could, but um, the, the 10th Legion, which was Julius Caesar's favorite legion, I then, you know, traced it and how it got to Judea. And so Cornelius, uh, he has a father and a grandfather, both of whom were in the 10th Legion. And I explain how he's in, uh, you know, Judea at this time and what he's doing. And um, he's kind of a rogue in a lot of ways. He does some very bad things during his lifetime. And uh, for him to come to the realization that he does at the crucifixion, uh, is a complete change of character for him. So tell us about this Greek slave who sounds like uh, sounds like he's going to re- become a reporter. Well, he is tasked, Lu- Lucinius, um, he is tasked by his master, um, this is in the late 50s A.D., uh, on getting all the stories of the wonder worker Jesus. Um, a lot of Roman nobles at this time thought this was wonderful to collect stories about uh, people who did miraculous things or magicians. And so Lucinius's master tasked him with this, the, with this job to go and find out about Jesus. Well, Lucinius goes to the centurion Cornelius and, because he's one of the eyewitnesses at the crucifixion and a crucial eyewitness. And uh, at first, their relationship is uh, very strained. Uh, They don't like each other. Uh, Lucinius, uh, as a slave, is he's very upset that he is a slave. He was a physician. He was captured by pirates. And he really detests this Roman centurion who's very uh, condescending, to say the least, at the beginning. Let's get to know Pontius Pilate. It's, we all know the name. We all, uh, of course, as Christians, uh, he's the man who gave the order. So yeah. he is, you know, I mean, we, uh, it, it's, we almost don't like to say his name. Well, uh, his name, I think, reveals a great deal about him and about his background. And it's one of the steps that I take in the research uh, that goes into this book. Uh, we, we say the words Pontius Pilate, and, and what do they mean? Well, Pilate comes from the Latin Pilatus, meaning skilled or very skillful with a pilum, which is a Roman javelin, a Roman spear. How do you get that name? Well, nicknames in Rome were given to people when they did feats uh, that were extremely impressive. For instance, Scipio, when he beat Hannibal uh, of Carthage uh, in Africa, he got the name Africanus, conqueror of, of Africa. So Pontius Pilate had to have done something, you know, he, he became a champion with the pilum, which means that he was in the, you know, the military, he was a Roman legionnaire, which of course, makes perfect sense because Roman nobles were typically uh, legates in the army. Um, 
So that tells you something about him. In fact, his nickname becomes so widely used, uh, it's, it's replaced. We don't have historically his first name. We don't know if he was Gaius or Marcus or anything else. His name Pontius, though, tells us another important fact about him. He was from the Samite area. Uh, that's the modern Abruzzi region. That's uh, the hilly, mountainous area uh, to the east of Naples. And um, Pontius is a name. Of the, the Samnites were long the foes of Rome. Uh, they fought against Rome, uh, and the Pontii family, uh, of which Pontius Pilate was one, was a very distinguished family. Uh, one of their um, forebearers, uh, Gavius, defeated the Romans at uh, uh, the Battle of Caudine Forks and actually made them walk under the yoke, submitting to him and surrendering, uh, which was a humiliating act. Uh, Pontius Pilate, uh, obviously as prefect of, of uh, Judea, as governor, he later has to become a senator. And his family, his descendants, uh, become consuls of Rome, the highest position next to being emperor. So um, it's a very, you know, just those two facts alone about his name give you a great deal about his history and family. Now, why did Pontius Pilate feel that Cornelius had slighted him? In fact, uh, he's so upset that he just wants to kill Cornelius. Well, Pontius Pilate was a man who, he, he governed uh, from 26 A.D. to 36 A.D. And we know that because there actually was an inscription rock uh, which was found in Caesarea Maritima, in 1961, and it's a it's a, a keystone. It's a what we would call um, a, you know the keystone to a building in which he dedicates the building to Tiberius, and it says it was built by Pontius Pilate. Uh, so it, it, this inscription is you know it gives it dates him in uh, Judea, but um, he was a very cruel prefect or governor of Judea. And he multiple times went out of his way to anger the Jews. Uh, he did things like bringing the Roman eagles into the city, which inflamed them. Uh, he tried to place uh, Roman uh, religious images inside the temple, which you know just incited them almost to the level of riot. He was a very cruel man. In the novel, I have Cornelius trying to advise Pontius Pilate as to a course which is more moderate with the Jews. And it's because of this Pontius Pilate sees Cornelius as having interfered with his governing and having been, you know, this kind of upstart who really shouldn't be telling him what to do. So he, he has an unending enmity for, uh, for Cornelius. Now there's another character in your book, uh, Fabius. Is that his name, Fabius? Fabius, yes. Tell us about um, him. Sure. The book, um, he, 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 they go from Caesarea Maritima, that's Cornelius and Lucinius, and they journey by boat to Rome. Uh, as they're journeying on the boat, um, they, there's a sailor by the name of Fabius. He badly hurts his hands uh, when, uh, on some ropes, uh, 
Lucinius, the physician, treats his hands, and Fabius was a very important sailor. He was the sail maker, the net maker, the rope maker on the ship. He's very crucial, and his hands are very crucial. So Lucinius, um, you know, saves his hands and treats them, and Lucinius and Fabius develop a relationship, but unbeknownst to Lucinius, Cornelius and Fabius create actually an even stronger relationship, and Cornelius converts uh, Fabius to Christianity long before he converts Lucinius to Christianity. Now, the Apostle Peter is also part of your book. Yes. What role does he um, play, and what what kind of a in the storyline? Well, um, I have uh, Lucinius and um, Cornelius' journey to Philippi, which is the home city for uh, Lucinius. Um, I won't tell you part of the plot there, but uh, Lucinius stays in Philippi for a number of years. Um, it's not his old hometown. Everyone that he knew is no longer there. His beloved Hestia, his fiancée, is, is deceased. Um, he falls on very hard times, and he ultimately decides that what he needs to do is to join Peter and be a mis- missionary. And so the story picks up with uh, going through Peter's missionaries and actually going uh, to convert uh Cornelius, the centurion, being called to uh, calling Peter and Lucinius to his home to convert him and to convert all of his friends and, uh, you know, people with him in his home. You say there may be a few controversies in your book. One of them is a new translation of the Lord's Prayer. Now, explain that. Well, um... I felt that uh, the Lord's Prayer, uh, I'm not trying to stir controversy, but I was trying to make it clear what I think the early Christians meant when they prayed the Lord's Prayer. And as I said, I do have a smattering of knowledge of uh, Greek and Aramaic, Aramaic being you know, the, the language franca of, of the region at that time. And so I put forth a new uh, translation, which I think will make more sense to uh, Christians if they read it with an open mind and an open heart. Very well said, Bill. Uh, Tell us, how do we get your book, Casting Lots? Casting Lots is available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and directly from Author House. You can also contact me directly. Well, thank you so much, Bill, for joining us on Author Talk. Thank you so much. I appreciate it very much. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station.
Yes, why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled Well Child Care in Infancy Promoting Readiness for Life, and our author is William B. Pittard III. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. I'm glad to be here. Tell me the story behind the story. This book is um, full of information that would be helpful to whom? How did you get inspired to write this? Well, to be honest, that's two different questions, but uh, they're both important. Uh, and uh, it's really written written for a group of, a particular traumatic uh, group of stakeholders. And that would include uh, providers, uh, well child care for children. It would include maybe pediatricians or family practitioners, and even some internists, as well as uh, nurse practitioners, both family practice and, and pediatrics, etc. It would also include, of course, uh, the people who provide health insurance, whether it be private health insurance administrators or government administrators, such as Medicaid, and then, of course, it's for parents and, and indeed children. But uh, the reason I wrote this book is because uh, in my training in pediatrics, it was sort of you know, deeply embedded in my my soul that well child care was of great import to the well-being of children and to to facilitate their development and health. And in my PhD training, which occurred shortly afterward, I found that though the immunization component of well child care was pretty well documented as safe and effective by way of the Federal Drug Administration and, and licensing. Uh, the other issues, which would include uh, parental anticipatory guidance, which is health education regarding taking care of children, and screening procedures for children to document how well they are developed in terms of hearing and vision and, uh, and, and cognitive development and social development, that had not been very well documented at all, uh, and and therefore I decided we needed to have more information regarding this to confirm the effectiveness, and subsequently we needed to have this put together in a book form that would summarize the data so that it would be readily available to each of the stakeholders. You've accessed other uh, contributors. Tell us about their background and what their specialties might have been. Well, each of the contributors in this book, and there are three others besides myself, uh, have spent quite a few years in health care delivery for children, and in particular the preventive care associated with well child care. Uh, they, one, they Dr. Darden, is a pretty much nationally, internationally known uh, individual for immunization vaccines for children, and has been on many national committees. Uh, Dr. Lovelace is indeed a practitioner in a rural area in South Carolina, very bright fellow who uh, trained at the University of Virginia 
in family practice uh, and has just got a wealth of information and he pretty much devoted himself to rural health because he indeed said to himself, this is where I'm needed, uh, not necessarily where I would like to be in terms of my academic career, but uh, because I think I'm needed there and therefore I'm going to be there, and that's what he's done. And the other two were uh, uh, Gustafson and, uh, and Roberts, who wrote the chapter on screening procedures, and they've all had quite a few years of academic experience, and therefore I think they're particularly well-versed in the topics that they've they talked about, and that's why they were asked to contribute. Your thoughts on screening, that's probably an area that most parents sort of overlook. They don't have their children in for screening if they're feeling well. It's only when they have an illness that strikes. Well, that's true, but to be perfectly honest, I think that's true for almost the whole issue of well child care. I mean, everyone has heard of well child care and knows what it constitutes. You know, they're aware that it's there are screening procedures and that there's uh, going to be uh, uh, advice or health health education given to the parents, and they know there will be immunizations. But in fact, they don't know too much about what is really involved in terms of how valuable it may or may not be. In fact, most parents, particularly those of privately insured children, are very concerned about cost, just like everyone else in these days, meaning that because uh, the health insurance policies rarely cover well-child or preventive care completely, uh, they, these people are very, very concerned about how much the cost is, and the cost does serve to limit the use of, of well-child care. In fact, among privately insured people, about 70% of the kids get the recommended amount, about recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics, the recommended amount of well-child care in the first uh, few years of life, preschool years. And by the same token, the government-insured children, i.e. Medicaid, probably fewer than 15% receive the recommended amount. And this is not because of cost, since Medicaid covers it, but rather it's because they're not aware of the, of the benefit well-child care offers their children, and in fact, they themselves did not receive well-child care as they grew up, and they really don't see a particularly big need for that. Having said that, that means many children do not have the well-child care that they need, and because they don't have the well-child care they need, they, they tend to not be as healthy as they might be, and they don't have the other benefits which have been pretty recently confirmed that children who receive well-child care, the recommended amount, are much more likely to be ready for school than those who do not. And they also have fewer, uh, lower costs, more cost-effective care in the long run than those who do not. All of these things contribute to the need for well-child care, and the understanding of this is not broadly understood by most stakeholders. For parents and grandparents who may be listening to this interview, what is the recommended number of visits a child should see a physician prior to school? Well, the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, recommends six visits, believe it or not, in the first year, so that's quite frequent, three in the second, two in the third, and one annually thereafter until they actually reach the age of, of 20. So well-child care is, is, is a frequent event, certainly in the preschool years. Uh, 
and, and, and the cost is, is significant. There's no question about that. But the benefits are also quite important and quite dramatic. In your book, because of the other authors and the style of the book, it seems to be a little more complex read than just a casual observational read. Who is your target audience? Who do you think is going to benefit most from reading well child care and infancy? Well, that's, that's a good question, and it's not, I don't know who would get it to be most benefited, but uh, the benefits to each of the three primary stakeholders are different. In other words, if you take the uh, insurance administrators, whether they be private or Medicaid, they need to know that the the benefit of well child care is quite dramatic. In other words, it reduces cost and it prepares kids for first grade learning. Uh, if if they don't know that, which they don't, because when the recommendations were first made by the academy, oh, way before 1970, uh, it was there was no scientific data, no empiric data showing that it was beneficial. And so the recommendations for the number of visits and the content of the visits was almost altogether based on so-called consensus expert opinion. In other words, they brought in pediatricians from around the nation and said, okay, guys, how do you think we should set this up? What should the recommendations be? And based on their best estimates, here's what they showed, and that was what they based the recommendations on. But subsequently, the Institute of Medicine published in the early 90s that, uh, that you know, if you – if you if you uh, corrected the underuse of needed uh, health care, such as well child care, you did increase the quality of care, but you also increased the cost. So if you were a health insurance administrator and you said, well, you know, if I make an effort or put methodology in place to increase the use of well child care, you know, that's going to cost more money. And since you don't show me any evidence that it's of great value or clinically effective, I just don't think I see the incentive to invest that money. On the other hand, the parents and the healthcare providers have pretty much almost always accepted the value of well child care. They like it, they want it, and therefore uh, they've continued to use it, but not not wholeheartedly. They, the providers, you know, the face validity, since they were trained that it was a value, the face validity is right there. They, they say, okay, I, I will accept it as valuable even without data. And parents accept it because they actually do, in fact, feel that it's, it's, it's supportive and beneficial, despite the fact there's been no data prior to about 1997 or 8 that, that showed it was beneficial. And now, those stakeholders all have, have the opportunity to see that, and we've summarized these findings that were relatively recent in, in this new book. And those address the specific benefits of uh, everything beyond the immunization process. Well, both that we, the chapter by Dr. Darden clearly goes through the immunization and shows the benefits of, of immunization, but they're pretty well documented in other sources as well. The thing that's unique in this book is that there's no other source that that quantifies or confirms or demonstrates the effectiveness of things like uh, health education of parents mm -hmm. regarding child health. You know, you know, simple things like like uh, uh, nutrition and 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 exercise and 
all of the things that, that, that are reviewed in a well child visit. You know, things that are important like sleep habits and, and what do you do for safety precautions. How do you prepare the parent for an uh, for the upcoming events for their child, they're going to start walking and crawling and, and climbing. How do you keep them? Up to, how do you facilitate avoiding toxins and exposures that might be quite harmful? How do you encourage them to sleep in the right position? How do you how do you get them to use apparatus to protect them in terms of sports activities? How do you encourage more interaction with other children and, and other adults? How do you facilitate the cognitive development of these children in terms of just reading to them or, or writing with them or coloring pictures or showing them pictures and discussing various and sundry things? All of these issues are, are part of well child care, which had never been previously shown to be beneficial or not beneficial, one or the other. It was just sort of face value. I think it's a great idea that you shared that information. A lot of parents, at least as a parent, when I had young children, I was, uh, unfortunately, I felt like I was flying without instrumentation in my aircraft of trying to be a parent. So this is good information that can be shared with, uh, with parents and, and in the upbringing of their children. How would you introduce this book to someone and get them interested, tease them, get them engaged in the contents of your book? Well, if, if I were talking to us to a friend, uh, how would I introduce in a sentence? I might say something on the order of, while well child care is familiar to most parents or most persons, uh, the utilization is far less than recommended by the Academy of Pediatrics, uh, by all children, even though more so by low-income children than by those who are more affluent. And this outcome is, in part, reflects a long-term lack of information showing the benefit of this this care and the the benefit of the cost efficiency cost effectiveness of this care. And therefore with that in mind, I want you to know this information because I want you to be aware that it is cost effective and the benefit is striking, even though it took a long time in, in terms of being generated. In editing this book and and uh, acquiring all of the content I'm certain you didn't start out to uh, copy someone else's work. What makes your book different from the others in the well, marketplace? I, I, I think that's that's exactly what I'm trying to say. It's different in the no, it's not a, a copy of previous uh, work. Simply because previous work did not show these things. There were the reason it wasn't previously documented is because if you think about it, the way you determine something is effective scientifically, if you do research, you do a randomized study. Well, you can't do a randomized study of well child care knowing that healthcare providers and parents both strongly believe that well child care is beneficial. So if I randomized a child <clears throat> not to get care or not to get the appropriate types of care, that would be considered unethical. And you just couldn't do that. So what you do is you use observational studies, which in fact are, are basically designed to look at the children who receive the appropriate amount of care and compare their outcomes to those who do not receive the appropriate amount of care and see if there are significant differences in terms of associations. And that's, that's what observational studies are all about. They're not as good as randomized studies, but that's all that you have available since you cannot randomize children. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Now, in in a, assembling all of the important data that you have uh, done 
in this book. Was there anything that was challenging or surprising in your findings? Well, I, I think that the, the things that were most interesting to me is what I've sort of stumbled on already and, and mentioned. But first of all, children who receive well child care, they recommended them out in the preschool years, perhaps because they have greater rapport with their health care provider, but they're much more likely to return to their health care provider for non-urgent sicknesses, you know, things like an ear infection or a throat infection or ad nauseum, things of that sort, they're much more likely to go to their private provider or their health care provider to get care than they are to the more expensive uh, emergency departments of hospitals. And what that results in is a more cost-efficient care. And you may say, well, I don't know how much that would be at my child. Well, the answer is, I don't know how many times your kids have gone to the emergency room, but certainly there are lots of people who go to the emergency room for so-called non-urgent care, and the cost of an emergency room visit is significantly greater than those who do not. And then secondly, those kids who get the amount of private uh, health care in the preschool years are significantly more likely to be ready for school than those who are who are not uh, ready for school. And if you think about it, if a child is not prepared for first grade when he gets there, he's much more likely to do less well academically. He's much less more likely to have lower self-esteem. And in the long term, he's much more likely to be set up for things like unemployment, poverty, and even crime. So if you can prevent those things, why not do that? Good advice. Good advice. Dr. Pittard, thank you for joining me today and sharing the background story of Well Child Care in Infancy. Our author, William B. Pittard III. Thank you, sir. Where can our listeners get copies of this book? Well, the, the, the book can be purchased from most book distributors. And typically they can find it on Amazon and on Barnes & Noble or request it at their local bookseller, and they'll be happy to provide it for them by ordering it in. Get it in terms of a soft cover, a hard cover, and even the ebook. They're available at each of those places you just mentioned, and uh, I think you can also certainly go to Author House. Thank you so much. And are you planning to launch a website with additional information and helps for parents, or is that in the works? Well, th that's being done by the marketing people through Author House, and so the answer is going to be yes. I don't happen to have that address right now. I'm sorry. Not a problem. They can do a search under your name and locate all of the uh, details of uh, this book and anything else you decide to publish in the future. Again, it's William B. Pittard III, and this particular book is titled Well Child Care in Infancy, Promoting Readiness for Life. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Well, thank you for your thoughts. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Half questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. 
Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled Asthma and Awesome You. Believe you can get there too. Is that also the subtitle, Dr. Shaw? That's correct. Fabulous. And thank you so much for joining me today. The author, Dr. Atul N. Shaw. Welcome to the program, sir. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I love the illustrations. I love the concept of your books. You are addressing what are sometimes aggravating health issues for children, and you have illustrated your book well or have had it illustrated well. It's just under 40 pages. Yeah, it's around 38 to 40 pages. 38 to 40 pages. And how did you get interested in approaching the health market directed at children in the way that you have? been a practicing allergy and asthma specialist for almost 20 years now and half of my patients are children and what I realize over years is that children who have allergies or asthma they do not understand what they have and I felt there's a need out for children to learn about their medical conditions and it's my passion to teach them so as we make them better we educate them along the way and that translated into the series of books. Allergies such as asthma, are those environmental or can they also be brought on by stress? It's a very good question. Uh, in asthma, it could be both. Uh, we call intrinsic factors and extrinsic factors. So all the extrinsic factors can be allergies like indoor, outdoor, dust, mold, dog, cat, different pollens. It can also be triggered by non-allergens, including strong smells, bathroom cleaners, strong perfumes, candle smells, uh, but also without any trigger, it can be intrinsic, which can be emotions or stress. Is it possible to outgrow those types of allergies? Absolutely. Uh, science has reached a point that you can actually reverse the allergies through specific uh, treatment, either by allergy injections or through allergy drops. And how would you describe uh, the common phrase allergy? That's a, a phrase that's used a lot in our lexicon of languages. What exactly is an allergy? Uh, allergy, by definition, is an overactive immune system. Uh, the general myth or common belief is allergy is a weak immune system, but it's a misconception. When someone's immune system is overactive to normal day-to-day -day environmental exposure, that's called an allergy. For example, if someone does not have allergies, when they're exposed to dog dander or pollen, they would not have any symptoms. person whose immune system is overactive, who has developed allergies, when they're exposed to tree pollen or the same dog dander, they'll have runny nose, sneezing, itchy eyes, and if they have underlying asthma related to allergy, that asthma would be triggered because of those allergies. Are you finding more patients susceptible to asthma than before, or is it stayed stabilized, or is it getting less? 
Oh, it's actually much more common now. And uh, as we live in a society where we continue to have more and more people with allergies, the prevalence of asthma is going up. If you look at uh, 2013 numbers, just in the United States alone, we have 18 million plus people with asthma. And among children, it's around uh, 6.8, close to 7 million children with asthma. Those are some incredible numbers. Are you finding any correlation between food and the increase of allergies in specific asthma? Yes, we are seeing more and more children with food allergies. And uh, it can be as simple as hives, but some of the food allergies can be very life-threatening, including peanut allergies and shellfish allergies. Uh, There is some correlation between children with asthma and underlying food allergies. So if we can identify those food allergies and avoid those foods in their diet, you can actually help those children feel better and reduce the need for medications. In your book addressing the condition of asthma, do you have a solution in there or are you just descriptive of what takes place and what a child can expect? For example, when they have an asthma attack. Yeah, uh, you know, when I started writing the book, I was addressing uh, the educational aspect for children. But I I also felt that the parents who take care of those children or guardians or family members, they also need to learn about underlying allergies and asthma. So this particular book or the series of books has been designed in the way where in the beginning we have a story that that young child can understand Uh, There are two children who have asthma. One of them is suffering. The other one had asthma who has got better through the right treatment. And they, you know, talk among themselves. And I'm educating the young child about allergies and asthma through the story. But the later part of the book addresses a lot of question and answers specifically designed for parents. It also has a list of commonly asked questions also a list of uh, asthma medications, allergy medications, as well as specific steps they can take to help their own son or daughter who has asthma. Are you finding or discovering non-drug-related cures or approaches to alleviating the asthma symptoms? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, as you had asked in the beginning, are there non-allergic triggers? Yes. So if we educate child or parents to learn about non-allergic triggers, including their emotions, including their stress, and learn how to handle that, it can be very helpful. Also, if we can help them reduce the respiratory infections, we can minimize number of asthma attacks that child will go through. So uh, uh, as part of the story, as well as part of the educational, we have included that in the book. Dust mites themselves, are those triggers that may bring on an asthma attack? That's correct. Uh, Dust mites are uh, small, tiny, microscopic, live creatures. We find them in the carpet, in the mattress, in the pillows. And if child or adult who is highly allergic to dust mites, while they're sleeping, they're exposing and they're breathing the air that contains the protein that comes out from dust mites and dust mite body parts, that can definitely trigger nighttime asthma. Also, those children, when they wake up in the morning, they have sneezing spells, they have nasal congestion, they have sinus pressure, stuffy nose. So just simply putting special covers on the mattress and the pillows that will reduce the dust mite exposure can be a big help. Why is it that it seems there are more individuals either allergic 
to environmental issues or have allergies than they did in the past? Why is that, do you think? It's a very good question. Uh, in simple terms, we still don't have the answer. But there are some uh, theories. One of them we call is a hygiene hypothesis. What it means is cleaner we get in the society, more likely we'll have the allergies. And the science behind is that everyone is born with an immune system that requires some function. So our day-to-day exposure to small germs keeps the immune system normally active. But if we do not have exposure to -to day-to-day germs, then the same immune system becomes overactive to common things in our environment. So if you look at the prevalence of total allergies all around the world, developing countries uh, do not have as much allergies as developed countries like the United States, the UK, parts of Australia, uh, uh, parts of Europe. So this is a theory, and most of the allergists or allergy specialists believe that that might be the cause of higher prevalence of allergy in the United States. In diagnosing allergies and the uh, source of those, do you use a a skin patch test, or how do you approach finding out what is the root cause? Yeah, ideally we begin with uh, history, so asking a lot of questions on what symptoms they have, what triggers the symptom, uh, can be a very good starting point. Uh, After that, uh, there are two ways to identify what allergies they may have. One of them is through the skin test, and it is done through either prick test or scratch test. And science has reached a point now where you can do those tests without needles. So within 20, 30 minutes of doing the test, uh, someone can have the answers what allergies they have, whether it's dust, mold, dust mites, dog, cat, pollens, etc. Uh, Similarly, uh, the allergy test can also be done through the blood test, and uh, many specialists uh, use both. I was not aware of the blood test approach. That's uh, relatively new, is it it not? Uh, It has been out there for a while, but it has been more scientifically approved now, and uh, uh, it has become more accurate compared to what it used to be. Are you able to link the uh, pet ownership, if you want to call it that? I think pets own us, but being a pet parent... Does that trigger a lot of the allergies you're seeing, or is it something else in the environment? Uh, It's both. Uh, So uh, there are children where having pets early in life actually has a protective effect, but majority of the patients uh, having pet triggers their allergy symptoms. So if a child or adult has symptoms and if uh, their blood test or skin test shows that they're allergic to pets, then ideal solution at that time would be not to have the pets. If they choose to have pets, then obviously through specific allergy vaccination, the pet allergy can be reversed also. You have a phrase in your book that I think is catching and a great one. You say in the last, I guess, page or two of your book, two of your characters are reading aloud the words on the cover. Can you imagine your life allergy-free? Yes, it's possible. Now it's your turn. The Amazing Allergist will show you how. Is that your your name for what you do and how you accomplish cures for children and individuals with allergies? You know, I can share with you that uh, I have been given that as a nickname. Uh, for last uh, 20 years, what I have been doing, uh, the all the compliments I get from children, parents, and other physicians, the common phrase came was, you have done an amazing job, you're amazing. 
So finally, the word amazing allergies was coined. So it's That's my beautiful. nickname. Beautiful. And I believe all the allergists in practice who help patients are amazing with what they do. I, I like that phrase. It's uh, very catchy, and I uh, love the fact that you have been able to coin that and, and attach it to your name, Dr. Shaw. How would you introduce this book to somebody and get them interested in, in securing their own personal copy? The books are available now through all uh, you know, very good booksellers, including Barnes & Noble's Amazon, Amazon.com. Uh, the book has also been converted into Kindle, so if someone has Kindle, they can have you know direct download. And uh, we also have it available on my publisher's website, which is amazingallergist.com. Love that. Were there any challenges in getting this to print? I notice you have some wonderful illustrations inside the book. Were there challenges in getting it converted from print to publishing? The toughest part for me was taking medical science, explaining into layman's term, and then taking the content from adult level to a child's level. So that was the most difficult aspect, but I enjoyed the journey. And the publishers of the book have been wonderful in helping me put together from contents to the actual book as a reality. Now, Dr. Shaw, you've completed two books so far that uh, deal with allergies and other issues. Uh, do you have anything else planned for the future? Yes, absolutely. Uh, to help children with allergies, uh, my third book would be Eczema and Awesome You. Fourth would be Food Allergy and Awesome You. And the fifth would be Bat Allergies and Awesome You. Well, thank you. You're an amazing allergist. Thank you, sir. Now, are you planning to continue with the idea of having fun activities for children in the back of your book as you do in the first two books? Uh, that's correct. Uh, I believe that children, if they have fun while they're reading or learning, uh, they can grasp and retain more. So the book has been made with some fun activities they can do uh, while reading the book or after reading the book. And if their interest is sustained, they'll be able to go back to the book again and again. And that's how I believe that I would have much more influence on their health. This book is titled Asthma and Awesome You, and we've been talking to the amazing allergist and writer, Dr. Atul N. Shaw. Thank you, Dr. Shaw, for joining me today and sharing your background story on how this book got into print. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Jay, for having me on your show. Absolutely honored for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. 